Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. We developed a foundation that was from the ground up, that was developed to be turnkey in serving people's interests. And if you think about remodeling a house, if you remodel an old house, You find out that the plumbing is bad, the electrical wiring is too old, and no matter what you do, you often still have to live with certain aspects of the house that aren't functional for today's needs. It doesn't have Wi-Fi built in. It doesn't have the HD TV capability in the wall. We were able to rebuild a house from scratch looking forward to the 22nd century not looking back to the 19th century. That positioned us to create opportunities for engagement and involvement that most community foundations do not take advantage of. I'm very pleased today to introduce Dr. Emmett Carson, founder of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, the largest community foundation in the world, with more than $8 billion in assets under management. The foundation is a donor-advised community foundation that serves the Silicon Valley community. It was founded in 2007 and has been a leader in addressing Silicon Valley communities' most challenging problems and helping families, individuals and corporations manage their philanthropy locally, nationally and globally. During the last 10 years, it has awarded nearly $4.3 billion in grants from all types of funds around the world, of which $2.3 billion has gone to charities in the nine-county Bay Area. Thank you very much, Emmett, for taking the time today to speak to Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. So I'm very much looking forward to having an opportunity to talk to you about the great work you do at the Silicon Valley Community Foundation to find out a little bit about the back, your background journey to set it up in the, in the first place. And also, you know, some of the the key perspectives you have on on what's happening in philanthropy, what's happening with community foundations and, I guess, financing social innovation generally in America today. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to our dialogue. So can you tell me about your role at the Silicon Valley Community Foundation and how you got there? Well, I am the uh, founding CEO of Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which was established 10 years ago from the merger of two pre-existing community foundations. One was the Community Foundation of Silicon Valley, which serves Santa Clara County in California. The other was the Peninsula Community Foundation, which served San Mateo County in California. And the two, after over 25 years of discussion back and forth, decided to merge. I was then the CEO of the Minneapolis Foundation in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, where I've been there for nearly 13 years. And I uh, got a call that said, uh, we'd like for you to come and try to do something that had not been done before on this scale in the United States. And the resulting merger created an institution uh, with $1.4 billion in U.S. currency for a community foundation, and today we're $8.2 billion in assets. Wow, that's uh, some growth. And can you tell me a little bit of the background? So what, what would be the motivation to bring two organizations together like that? Well, in fact, it was the motivation that was exciting to me because when often people think about mergers, they think we're going to reduce expenses, we're going to cut back and be more efficient. And in fact, that was not the motivation for this merger. The motivation was two communities that were increasingly becoming a region. You can't find Silicon Valley on a map, and yet people know about Silicon Valley all around the world. 
and they understood that as this phenomenon called Silicon Valley was going to grow and become more essential to the nation and the world, they needed a community foundation that could reflect this thing called Silicon Valley and have more impact on the region's issues of housing, of transportation, of education and immigration and infrastructure. And so they were quite foresighted, these two boards, to come together when they did. Right, right. That opens up the question. If you can talk a little bit about what you see as the distinct role of community foundations in supporting social change, and maybe in that context uh, where you you think your, your foundation fits in. Absolutely. So I've always thought that the very best community foundations reflect the interests and the passions of the people that live within that community. For Silicon Valley Community Foundation, 35% of our residents are foreign-born. So it shouldn't be surprising then that people who have arrived in Silicon Valley from elsewhere, other countries, but also from across the United States, have multiple overlapping charitable interests. They care about this place called Silicon Valley that you can't find on a map, but they also care about the other communities where they have lived in the past, whether those communities are in the United States or whether those communities are abroad. And so as we founded this new institution, we wanted to have a turnkey solution for people to engage in their philanthropy wherever it existed. And that has made us very unique as a U.S. community foundation. Most community foundations largely focus on a particular geography. While we do that work and we do it very well, we also focus on the multiple charitable interests of our local donors that have interests across the United States and around the world. As we have done that and done that more effectively, that has attracted donors who don't live here, who don't necessarily have a connection to us through geography, but who share our interests in innovation, creativity, and impact, but who live elsewhere, but who conduct their philanthropy through us. Right. Fascinating. Can you talk maybe about the perspective from the donor in that sense? What alternatives would they be looking at in terms of what they could do with their philanthropic money? And why would they choose a community foundation generally? Well, you know, there are a number of reasons why donors choose Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Donors can start funds as small as $5,000 at the Community Foundation. And so, in fact, most funds are under $100,000 at the Community Foundation. So it's important to understand we have a broad wealth level from people who have modest, relatively modest income to people who are very high net worth individuals. I'm going to focus a little bit right now on the high net worth individuals because it's important to understand people of means have every option to consider. They are not like I am. Uh, I'm price sensitive. I go to the restaurant and want to know what the special is. I go shopping and look for the sale rack. That's not these individuals. They are looking to get the very best service that's the most effective at helping them advance their philanthropic and charitable interests. And so we have uh, had the advantage because we started just 10 years ago. We developed a foundation that was from the ground up that was developed to be turnkey in serving people's interests. And if you think about remodeling a house, if you remodel an old house, you find out that the plumbing is bad, the uh, electrical wiring is too old, and no matter what you do, you often still have to live with certain aspects of the house that aren't functional for today's needs. It doesn't have Wi-Fi built in. It doesn't have the HD TV capability in the wall. 
we were able to rebuild a house from scratch looking forward to the 22nd century, not looking back to the 19th century. That positioned us to create opportunities for engagement and involvement that most community foundations do not take advantage of. Right. I'd like to come back to that in a moment. I'd be interested to hear some of the ideas that you've taken on board and how they've affected, uh, impacted the the kinds of projects you support and uh, the the work of the foundation. Can you tell me a little bit about the scale of your activity on the grant making side? And and I guess you talked a little bit about the philosophy, but the kinds of projects that you seek to support. Well, we, just to give you a size of our scale, today the Community Foundation has $8.2 billion in assets. Last year, we distributed $1.3 billion in grants through donors, corporations, and our unrestricted giving. To give you a sense of that $1.3 billion, it was second only to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in giving last year. $812 million of that went to the nine-county Bay Area, $48 million to uh, charities in California, $410 million to charities across the United States outside of California, and $15 million to charities around the world. That resulted in over a hundred and almost 109,000 grants that were awarded to some 69 countries. Wow, that's a tremendous uh, track record. Uh, so some very big numbers there. How involved are you in, is the foundation in actually deciding where this, these grants, who receives these grants? So that varies across our donor and corporate partners, as well as our unrestricted uh, grant making. So if you think of it, there are different buckets of resources to to work with communities and donors ask for different engagement from us. So some donors create funds to do charitable work and they say, community foundation, you figure it out. I've created a scholarship fund. I want to help students who have these interests and you go out and find the students and give them the, the funds necessary to go complete their education. Other donors are very engaged in in a particular area, and they may say, help me find uh, and bring to my attention issues uh, in the area of the environment that could really be impactful. I want to be involved in the decision making, but I'm relying on you to bring us, uh, bring to me uh, great ideas and opportunities. And then we have donors and, and organizations that say, We really have a very good idea of what we want to do. We know where we'd like to, what charities we'd like to support. And we need you to make sure that they meet all of the legal requirements of the U.S. government or in the case of overseas, overseas governments, that these organizations are in compliance and follow all of the applicable rules with that grant. And we need you to assure that they are both in compliance and following the rules. And so these grants all fall into those categories. We have some monies uh, that we get to determine the priorities of exclusively, and then others are in partnership with our donor advisors and corporate partners. Right. Uh, Have you any sense of the kind of breakdown or distribution of those? Oh, increasingly, the largest share is around the donor advised funds where they want involvement and engagement. And I welcome that. Our goal is not to become a private foundation where we are somehow deciding, look, I live in Silicon Valley and I'm keenly aware that I and the staff, we don't have all of the answers. And it's only in partnership with donors who are themselves extraordinary in their learning capacity, in their interest to think big and creatively that we can find interesting solutions. So I I much prefer the partnerships that we have been able to create. And I think that is a key reason for our community foundation's rapid rise and success. 
The Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University in Silicon Valley provides rigorous training to help social entrepreneurs succeed with a special emphasis on climate resilience and women's economic empowerment via its in-person and online programs. Since 2003, Miller Center has paired top-level Silicon Valley executive mentors with enterprises from 65 countries. Find out more at www.scu.edu backslash Miller Center. Right. That sounds very interesting. And it gives you this reach. And I suppose, in a sense, allows you to be pretty responsive and innovative in the way in which you respond to unfolding situations, problems. And as you say, bringing in this expertise from a a pretty widely a group with deep expertise in a wide range of areas. Yes, it affords us connections and relationships with donor partners, corporate partners, as well as nonprofit partners to find creative intersections, as well as partnerships with government. Yes, yes, absolutely. How are community foundations doing? You know, I think it depends on what community foundation you're talking about. Community foundations today have a lot of competition in the United States. There are commercial entities that such as uh, Fidelity, Charitable Gift Fund, and Vanguard Investment Company and Swab Investment Company that also offer donor-advised funds. Some universities offer donor-advised funds here in the States as well as educational institutions. Uh, United Ways offer uh, donor-advised funds as well. So there are, there's a lot of competition just in the donor-advised fund space where community foundations used to have a monopoly on providing that product. Also, there are new forms of giving. So social media, crowdsourcing, and other opportunities to raise and direct charitable capital are also creating uh, pressures on the community foundation model. And lastly, community foundations used to have exclusive, some exclusive, Exclusive access to information in the local neighborhood. And today, because of search engines like Google and others and social media, it is fairly easy to find out what's going on in your backyard where you don't need to get access to that information through a relationship with a community foundation. So I think that the community foundation model as a broad-based model, is under some stress in terms of the economics for how it works going forward. Uh, There's also pressure that more and more donors are not interested in leaving a bequest that will last in perpetuity, but are more interested in engaging in philanthropy in their lifetime. And, And that's also putting stress on the traditional community foundation model. Right, right. Why is that, that latter point, that bequests? Well, yeah, you may be familiar that Bill and Melinda Gates, as well as Warren Buffett, have made a big effort called the Giving Pledge to get uh, very high net worth people, billionaires, to engage in making commitments to give away uh, most of their resources, either within their lifetime or to disperse those resources soon after their death, so say 10 or 15 years after after their demise. And I think when leaders of that level begin to make that argument, that permeates down to other people who aren't billionaires. So the millionaires start to think that way, the thousandaires start to think that way, and people at lower giving levels also start to say, well, maybe I shouldn't do legacy gifts. In the same way, uh, we went through a period in America where uh, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the Fords created private foundations that lasted in perpetuity. They created the model that everyone wanted to follow to have a private foundation that would last in perpetuity. This generation of philanthropic leaders have have, uh, shifted. You know, if you look at what Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan have said, uh, it's their intention to give away most of their wealth. And and others have signed on to, to the giving pledge. So I think you see a trend for this era's philanthropists 
to uh, largely want to give while they live. And that general philosophical perspective then works against what was the 100-year-old community foundation model, which said we're trying to build permanent, unrestricted assets in perpetuity. I'm with you. Yeah, thanks for spelling that out, Emmett. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the trends you see in donors' interests maybe in the last few years? What kinds of things? I mean, you've talked about the increasing geographic reach of the foundation's activities and presumably, as you said, reflecting their uh, donors' interests as well. I don't know whether one or two noticeable things or interesting things about what you'd say about philanthropy in, in Silicon Valley. Oh, there, there are a lot of uh, important trends that I think have big implications for philanthropy, not just here in the States, but around, around the world. To begin with, and to put it in context, Silicon Valley is the epicenter of the tech revolution that's changing our society and how we live, work, and play. And so trends that start here instantaneously get picked up around the world. This, uh, the, the same is true for philanthropic trends. So let me talk about these trends and understand I'm speaking in generality and individuals uh, obviously will vary. Uh, one trend is that they're master learners. Uh, unlike uh, traditional philanthropists, these are individuals who go deep in learning about the issue that they care about. They become subject area experts where they can talk in detail about the subjects that they care about. And that's very different from the older tr- philanthropists that had an interest. They may have followed the topic, but that they relied on the advice of the nonprofit leaders to be the subject area experts. The, the folk in Silicon Valley want to be partners because they have equally learned in the work. The second trend is that these philanthropists are far more likely to have fewer topics of interest. In the past, we saw traditional philanthropists, they might have had a list of 20 organizations that they supported. These newer philanthropists in Silicon Valley are likely to have maybe three or four areas of interest at most. And that allows them to go much deeper in their understanding. These philanthropists are much more willing to go big and take big risks and big bets right out the gate. Very large investments of 50 million, 75 million, 100 million dollar kinds of contributions to to make things happen. Traditional philanthropists used to be uh, are, are more likely to be incremental. I'll give you X amount come back in a year, tell me how how much progress you've made, I'll give you a little bit more, come back again. These Silicon Valley donors are willing to make relatively very large bets, provided that they can learn something uh, to, to move forward. The last part I would probably mention is that they see a lot of ways to do good. So traditional philanthropists saw uh, the, the way to do good relied largely on giving a grant to a nonprofit organization. And if that worked out well, they thought government would then step in and expand the program. And that was basically the model. The, the newer philanthropists in Silicon Valley, one, they see that there are multiple ways to do good. So, for example, they may give to a nonprofit, but they may also give to what we call in the states a public benefit corporation or LLC3 uh, corporation, which, uh, which is actually a for-profit organization that does charitable good as well. So an example of this is there's a a shoe company called Tom's, and they will say for every pair of shoes you buy, they will give a pair of shoes away to someone deserving. What's important about this model is they're doing good through a business format, not a nonprofit format. And there's no expectation that government will come in at the end and have a role. Uh, The newer philanthropists are more suspect that government either will either have the resources to take on projects or will be flexible over time once they adopt projects to change 
to changing conditions. And so they don't look for their exit strategy, if you will, to be government will take over as traditional philanthropists used to feel. Right. Yes, it's something I I talk about in uh, another podcast I host, Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. So really talking about social entrepreneurs and certainly a lot emergence of more hybrid and for-profit models, which is a, a very interesting trend. Now, you provide grant funding. Do you support for-profit activity in any way? Uh, not directly in our grant making. So again, we are under the same. Uh, and when I say we, I mean the grant making that uh, Silicon Valley Community Foundation has sole discretion over. We are very much in that regard a traditional grant maker. What we do engage in, which most foundations do not engage in, is active public policy engagement. So we uh, support uh, laws. We advocate in favor of laws that we think will improve both the economic environment for business, but also for people to have a better quality of life. And we also actively advocate and lobby against laws that we think will do harm. Right, right. That's very interesting. And certainly, I'd like to talk a little bit about that maybe in, in a moment. I'm just thinking about you You mentioning the influence that Silicon Valley has, and uh, as you rightly point out. And I'm wondering, as you mentioned that the, it's, it's non-profit primarily or entirely that you, out of the activity that you do, the, the, the foundation itself, the grants it provides. Have you got a perspective on the growth, massive growth, really, uh, in, in, in impact investment? And the assumption, I guess, that goes with that is that there's a lot more for-profit business models that will work in social situations. Clearly, it's very positive to have a rich and diverse uh, source of, of, of different kinds of funds and financial instruments. At the same time, there's a, l- a lot of money coming in that has maybe quite uh, challenging, quite demanding, uh, you know, looking for real financial returns. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the uh, your thoughts on, on those questions? Yeah, so, you know, impact investment or mission-related investment, it's been around for a very long time. So it, it in and of itself is, is not a new idea. I think that in particular, traditional foundations and, and, and newer foundations are excited about it because it at least holds out the possibility of an evergreen resource, uh, one in which can be renewed and which monies will come back in. I do have a couple of concerns about this. And my concern, to be clear, is not about the risk of it. I think it's good to try new things and and to explore new opportunities. But my, my two concerns are, are this. One, the staff that's required to engage in this work is a different staff than the regular traditional program officer staff. When I was at the Minneapolis Foundation, we had a separate organization called the Minneapolis Nonprofit Assistance Fund that actually did lending. And we had people who were former bankers who could read business uh, statements, perform us, and do that work. It was very important that this was not viewed as a grant but it's viewed as a loan with a return. And whether that return is market or below market, uh, there are hard decisions that have to be made when you realize that the loan is going south. You've got to be willing to call the loan, get whatever capital you can and get that back. And that is a hard thing for foundations to do to close things down. And we found we needed to have a separate staff who had a different mindset about that work and framing it in the community. The second thing that I worry about is, is there actually enough deal flow that's available? So Silicon Valley Community Foundation, through a number of our donors, are actively involved in impact investing. And they are willing to take a, for for the areas that they're interested in, they're willing to take a below market interest rate. But it has to be a good deal. And so I do think that the availability of more resources will lead to more people creating proposals. I am not sure that the proposals will all be of sufficient quality to be supported. And I think that runs a risk 
that if people invest in bad deals, uh, and some deals are, are not going to work out, that's the nature of this work. But if people invest in a lot of bad deals and that becomes the, the headline, uh, the public headline, then that will shut off the flow of resources and people will say, we shouldn't be engaged in this work. So I think it will be a delicate balance as we're seeing a huge increase in the number of funders willing to do this, will we see a proportional increase in quality uh, deal flow proposals that will have a better than average chance of success? Right. That's very interesting. When you say a bad deal, presumably you mean that the underlying project itself isn't necessarily viable or well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I see a lot of organizations that are looking and saying, wow, there is capital if I do impact investing. So let's take this idea we have that was for a grant from a foundation and let's put it into the context of something that we believe can be an impact investing opportunity. And so how do we repackage this as something else? And in fact, it's a good grant. It ought, to, it ought to be given a grant, but it is not an opportunity in which it's going to create the return on investment, whatever that, even if it's below market, it's just not likely to do that because of the mechanics of what the project itself is. And as you get a lot of people in this space, uh, many of whom may be relying on uh, the staff expertise that they that they normally use, and not the staff expertise that's more specialized in impact investing. They may decide to go with deals where the underlying specifics uh, are not likely to to pass muster. Absolutely, and I, I spoke to Kevin Starr from the Malago Foundation. He he echoed some of those points that you're making there, and saying that sometimes he he, he thinks that you know starting with a non-profit and you know having grant uh, finance, and that at a later stage, perhaps if appropriate, then there can be a sometimes a for-profit arm, or they can look at that as a second stage. But the danger, as you say, of people trying to turn their idea into something that it's not to try and take advantage of what seems to be a you know a rise in funding. Um, it's interesting that you say that many of the donors that you deal with are willing to accept lower rates of return. I think that is a really important question as well, isn't it? Yes, I think I, there's tremendous opportunity. I mean, I don't recall a time, and I'm a, I'm a student of uh, philanthropic history, I don't recall a time where we had as many wealthy people who have made public commitments to engage in philanthropy, who are willing to take big bets, take high risk, engage deeply in their lifetimes to try to make our world a better place. So I think it's an amazing time that has a lot of upside. And and the question is how do, and, and it will be an upside over the next 40 to 50 years. Many of these people are in their mid-20s. So, you know, 50, 60 years of philanthropic engagement in which they're only going to learn more, become better, inspire and encourage more people. And so I see this as an exciting time for those of us who are in philanthropy. And we're just at the start of it. So that's very exciting. You talk about innovation. And when you brought together the two foundations, it seems that you've been very innovative in terms of bringing new ideas in and engaging uh, with donors and have great success in, in growing the donations, the funding of, of the foundation. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy and how you went about this? Yeah, so my philosophy is is very straightforward, and, and it boils down to what I call partnership and reciprocity. And it's not that most uh, foundations, uh, community foundations, wouldn't say they engage in partnership, but I have a very different meaning of what partnership means and then reciprocity. So the the way I would I would explain it is. There was, when my daughter was very young, my wife would take her to the doctor and essentially she would uh, 
uh, get a prescription and the doctor would say, look, you know, unless your kid starts to turn various colors, you know, this will work and see me in two weeks. And we went and got it and gave it to our kid and it was it. Now my wife takes her mother to the doctor because it's, it's a generational thing. And the doctor will prescribe something, but the doctor will also say, uh, here's a website to go look up the drug. Here's my email to get in contact with me. My wife will dutifully go home. She'll look up something about the drug. She'll see something related with another drug. She'll email the doctor and say, look, I was looking at these two different drugs and given my mom's history, I think this other drug might be a better substitute. And the doctor will say, you know what? I see what you mean. I'm happy to prescribe the other drug. Now, my wife is not a medical doctor, but she is a partner in the care of her mom in a way that she was not a partner with the doctor in the care of our daughter. That is what I mean by partnership. Community foundations have essentially seen partnership as come in, give me resources to do the projects I think we ought to do, and then go away. That's your role, Mr. and Mrs. Donor. Give us resources. We know what to do. We know the community best. We appreciate all your support in writing the check. And now we'll come back to you later to get more resources. And don't give them away today while you're alive. Wait and hold on to them and give them all to me to do what I would like to do after you're gone. But partnership, particularly with these newer donors, is about engaging deeply in an exploration where you learn together, you share ideas, you go back and forth. They're looking for nonprofits who also want to engage in that kind of back and forth idea. Now, the second part is reciprocity. Reciprocity is my influence grows the more I can help you achieve what you want to do the more you're willing to at least listen to opportunities that I might put in front of you. So everybody can try this experiment. Say you walk up to a department store and there are two double glass doors or an office building. You hold the door open for the person coming behind you at the first set of doors. Invariably, At the second set of doors, they will hold the door open for you. It's reciprocity. You've done something for me, and now I feel some obligation to do something for you. We try very hard when we work with donors to find what they're passionate about, what they find value in, what will excite them. And if we can do that well, if we can get them excited and engaged in the things that they care about, then we can share with them things that we have come across in the community that we think could benefit from their help and their insights and their contribution of resources, whether that's education or housing or transportation or immigration. And and they're willing to listen because we have now become partners with them in what they would like to do. That sounds simple in description. It's very hard to do in execution, but I think it is part of why we have been successful in working with donors very differently, even though if you were to read our materials and compare that with what others say about their work, you'd see the same kinds of words. The Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Echoing Green. Echoing Green drives social progress further, faster, via its Global Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship, now running for 30 years. Echoing Green's new Impact Investment Program aims to bridge the gap between impact investors and social entrepreneurs. To help social entrepreneurs better access finance, to build stronger, more resilient social ventures. You can find out more at echoinggreen.org. 
You mentioned it's a, it's a very positive philosophy and, and clearly one that's that's uh, helped uh, enormously with, with the great growth that you've seen. And you mentioned this tying in donors' interests or, you know, bringing together different aspects of, of their, I guess, helping them and their philanthropic kind of a- aims and widening them in some cases. Can you talk about Silicon Valley and from that respect? How, how are things? I mean, I spoke to the, oh gosh, I've forgotten his name now, Doug, who wrote Throwing Stones at the Google bus. Doug, you'll come back to me. Um, but in, in any case, he talks about some of the challenges of the, you know, the financial models where there's some kind of winner takes all in, in Silicon Valley and things and, and side by side with some of the social problems in Silicon Valley. So let me just put it uh, uh, this way again. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the community needs in Silicon Valley? What are some of the the biggest challenges and how are you helping? Absolutely. So Silicon Valley is a study of contrast. Uh, We are the best of, of capitalism in terms of people coming with ideas, working incredibly hard, and then being uh, phenomenally successful in building companies that reshape uh, the nation and, and the world. At the same time, uh, we have enormous social issues that are growing. Uh, The social issues are not growing because some people are successful. The social issues are growing because we don't have a regional framework to handle those, uh, the growing inequality and and challenges. So take housing, for example. We have people coming from all around the world to live and work in Silicon Valley. And yet our housing is not keeping up with the number of new people coming in. In fact, we've we've got uh, annually, we've got about 7,000, 8,000 new people, and we've got about uh, 350, 400 new housing starts. I mean, it's really that stark year over year. And so uh, what happens in that environment is price goes up. And those people who have more modest incomes get priced out of the market. Every job in the in an economy needs to have a place for someone to live who occupies that job. We don't have that in this economy. And yet we don't have it is a regional problem. So to give you a perspective between uh, San Francisco and San Jose, they're about. 37, 38 different municipalities, uh, ranging from Palo Alto to Menlo Park to San Mateo City to Santa Clara City to Half Moon Bay, Burlingame. Each one of those cities has its own housing policy, its own zoning policy, its, its, its own strategy. And so what happens is one community will say, we're going to allow a major corporation to expand uh, its footprint and create jobs. We will benefit as a local community from the taxes that that new corporate expansion will create. And yet all the other surrounding communities then bear the brunt of the housing and the transportation and the impact on infrastructure. And so we have been ill-equipped to have a regional response in which the taxes that are involved in in the corporate expansion, which is all to the good, is shared with those folk, uh, those uh, municipalities that also bear the brunt for providing the housing and the increased congestion costs. We don't have a mechanism to talk about it. We don't have a mechanism for tax sharing. And that's why the public policy and the advocacy work of the Community Foundation is so important. Uh, We also have tax policies that also make it more difficult uh, to to get into this. And, And one of those that I would just mention is complicated to describe is Prop 13. Uh, that that uh, is in the state of California, which has made it more difficult to handle some of these issues. Right, right. It sounds very challenging. It is, and uh, that's why I come to work every day renewed about the the challenges facing the community and our role in in making a difference. 
Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the advocacy work you do and the policy related work? As you mentioned, it's not something that maybe that many foundations or community foundations necessarily do. What, what's the thinking behind that? And what are what are a couple of the priorities? I, I think you probably touched on the, the, the uh, property related question. But if you could talk a little bit about that, Emmett, that'd be excellent. Absolutely. So to begin, community foundations in the United States have a different legal status than private foundations. And that legal status allows us to engage in advocacy and lobbying, whereas uh, private foundations are prohibited from lobbying for, for legislation with government. They simply can't do it. Most community foundations shy away from lobbying because they are concerned that their donors uh, may take some objection, right? Donors are usually uh, on many sides of the issue. And so out of a fear of offending any donor, uh, community foundations are reluctant to engage in this space. Our foundation has taken a very different view about lobbying. We believe it's one of the most important things that we can do as a community. And we have successfully lobbied on a number of issues. We have lobbied against payday lending. Uh, It may sound unbelievable, but in this country, uh, you can charge people up to 450% interest on a short-term loan, and it's legal. Only the poorest people uh, use these vehicles uh, of financing because they will have a car that breaks down or, or a medical emergency and it's exploitative. We have been successful in getting 17 local ordinances passed that restrict payday lending. We have successfully kept uh, state-level proposed policies that would have expanded payday lending. Uh, We have prevented that expansion. Uh, We found uh, in the state of California that uh, in, edu- in, in the area of education, African-American and Latino kids who successfully passed the standardized test in their eighth grade math tests in ninth grade were being told that they had to repeat the class even though that they had passed the test for no discernible reason. We found that that was a statewide problem through the research that we engaged in And as unbelievable as it may sound, uh, we had to go get a state law that said uh, if a child passed the course, uh, they must be placed in the course uh, commensurate with what the test results were and that you could use discretion to put a kid in a more advanced course, but you could not use discretion to hold a kid back. We've been active in supporting uh, transportation in both San Mateo and Santa Clara counties and local bond measures, which passed with overwhelming uh, uh, support. We've also uh, been active in supporting expansion of housing in our two local counties, and uh, those things have passed uh, as well. So we actively use uh, our advocacy and lobbying efforts to work on issues that we think will advance the interests of everyone in this community. And today we are very active in in areas around uh, immigration. As I mentioned, 35 percent of the people in Silicon Valley are foreign born. And so the current uh, United States dialogue around immigration is of key importance to our community foundation. And we are currently supporting a new state law, SB 6 which will uh, uh, allow the state to provide funding for legal immigrants who have not committed felonies to uh, resist deportation. Really important work, Emmett. Really, really, really important work. Um, Maybe just a a final uh, couple of questions, if I might. What what kinds of projects do you the foundation look to support or what kind of grant applicants are you looking for i can I say a few things about what makes a good grant applicant and maybe a little bit also of any trends you see in the kinds of uh, proposals you're getting i i spoke to uh somebody recently who was talking about a massive growth in you know progressive new media social projects looking for funding in in the current political climate i don't know whether there, you've seen any trends similar What makes a good grant is when you have the rare combination of capable leadership and a strong strategy 
that you believe can lead to execution. Uh, we are increasingly concerned that the nonprofit sector in Silicon Valley is behind the curve on uh, introducing technology into their operations. That's both technology in terms of software and tracking, technology in terms of how to use new tools to advance the social missions. For example, you know, the way we look for homeless people today when there's bad weather is to send someone out in the van and look under tents and say, are you okay? Uh, today, uh, you can put a GPS tracker uh, in, a, in a watch band that will have their location. It can also monitor their vital signs. And we would know exactly where somebody is in the moment at the point they're in distress. And, and we can find them. And you could have a campaign where many of these people uh, could have their loved ones encourage them to wear this band for their own safety. So there are a lot of things. One of the biggest problems with homeless people are getting well-fitting shoes. Well, we can use 3D printers today that could uh, map someone's foot size exactly and create an indestructible pair of uh, plastic shoes that could last for two to three years. We're not using very basic technology that's available to rethink how we provide services uh, in our own communities or in communities around the world. And so we are starting to do that. We will be holding an innovation conference uh, in 20, September of 2018, focused on artificial intelligence in San Francisco. It'll be our second such uh, conference on technology. And so we're really moving forward to say, given that we're based here in Silicon Valley, how do we make sure the nonprofit sector isn't behind and understanding and thinking about how these tools will affect how we live, work and play? Right. Very interesting. I spoke to Kevin Karnblatt recently and he was talking about the he was very inspiring about the important role that nonprofits play and particularly in technology related areas that has to some extent been neglected, he was saying. And uh, that's a very good point about the, the use and implementation of technology within the nonprofit sector itself. Yes. Um, so looking to the future, Amit, what are a couple of things then um, that you looking forward? What's your vision, would you say, for Silicon Valley Community Foundation over the next few years? Well, you know, we're at a place where I think how do we harness the incredible technological gifts that are happening and emanating from our community how do we leverage those? How do we leverage the wealth that's being created to make a difference here at home in our local community, across the country and around the world? Uh, we are uniquely positioned to do that. Uh, we have had some beginning success at how you do that. But that is what we need to perfect uh, because it's a, a unique uh, responsibility that we have being here and the people and the corporations that we have the privilege of working with and how do we leverage that for, for the good of humankind. It's a great vision, Emmett. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and lessons and the great work that you're doing with us today. And I wish you the very best of success in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.